Well, last week I spoke on the contrast between the fruit of the Holy Spirit in a believer's life and the works of the flesh or the works of the sinful human desire. And I felt like the Lord had given me an illustration and I shared it with you and said, you know, go ahead, pray about it, think about it, maybe it will speak to you. And it was that of a grocery cart that kept curving and hitting the, the shelves. Um, I had enough positive feedback from people that either that was just so memorable it stuck with them, or maybe the Lord even used it to say our lives on our own are really bent and keep curving. Somebody even sent me a video of their shopping cart when they pushed it. It actually went all the way around and came back to them. It landed back on self, which I thought was fitting because today I want to speak to you about community, about not being just individuals, but about fulfilling the law of Christ by bearing one another's burdens. So I'm going to focus today on the first five verses of chapter six in Galatians and also try and connect it with what came before in chapter five. Um, I'm going to do this under three main headings. One is the idea of humility, um, which is necessary for life and community. The second is burdens. What are these burdens and what are we to do with them? And then the third one is uh, the difficult one, which is confrontation. So I'm going to just for the time being skip over verse one and we'll come back to that in a minute. But the purpose of the fruit of the Holy Spirit in your life is actually not you. It's not for your benefit, although it certainly benefits you. The purpose of the fruit is to benefit the whole community. If you think about that great list from chapter five, think about love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. Primarily, those are for the health of the community. I mean, take the very first one, love. If you're the only person in the entire universe, what does that even mean? It loses any sense of meaning without the beloved, the one who loves and the one being loved. You need community for that fruit to even make any sense. In fact, when Jesus was asked what is the greatest of all the laws, commandments of God, you probably, most of you know this, he summed it up and said there's actually two. The first and greatest is love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And a second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. And he says on these two commandments depend the entire law and the prophets. The whole thing is summed up in love God and love neighbor. Or to truncate it down a little bit, if you think of the Ten Commandments, the first four are focused on your relationship with God, and the last six are focused on your relationship with one another. Don't murder, adultery, lying, these kind of things. Don't steal. That's related horizontally, and the first ones are vertically. But they're all about loving someone or some, someone else. The fruit of the Spirit is for the benefit of the community. And what a gift it is to be in a community of faith where these, uh, this fruit, I say these because it's singular fruit, but there's plural as we looked at last week. This fruit, however you want to say it, is happening in people's lives and you see it if you have eyes to look for it. And the whole community is built up as a result of it. I'm grateful when I see people that are close to me exercising patience and I can say, ah, that's the fruit of the spirit. I'm so glad you're being patient with me. See, I'm benefiting by the fruit in someone else's life. So when the fruit of the Spirit is happening in your life, others are benefited by it. How powerful that is. So the Holy Spirit is building a harmonious community. Now back up for a minute and think all the way back to Genesis. When God created everything, he said it is good. As he was creating, it is good, it is good, it is good. And then it was even very good when he created man. And the first time the Bible says something is not good is when he looks and says it is not good for Adam to be alone. Because 
We are made for community. And Adam was alone, and the animals were not suitable companions for him. As great as it is to have a pet, it's just not a suitable companion for the kind of community that we were made for. Furthermore, we can't adequately express the image of God as we were made without community, because God is an eternal community. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, the Trinity, the three persons of the Godhead, don't need us to have community. They, He, God, it's so hard to articulate this mystery, is an eternal community unto Himself. He's always been that. And so we're made in His image, and to have one Adam but not have an Eve, it was, it was not good. So God made Eve, and then it was very good. The point is we were made for community. You're not just for yourself. And even if you might think, boy, I'd really like to get some time alone right now, that's temporary at best. So in um, punishment, um, in criminal settings, solitary confinement is a real form of punishment because of what it does to the human soul. Now, as an introvert, if you're an introvert, maybe you're like, yeah, solitary confinement sounds pretty good for about two or three days, and then all of a sudden you'll be really hurting. Think about Tom Hanks in the movie Castaway when he's, he's on an island for like five years with no other people. He makes a volleyball and puts a, gets a uh, Wilson volleyball and puts a face on it so he can talk to someone because he was going literally insane. I, as an extrovert, about six hours is enough for me to start getting alone and I'm starting to feel like, ah, I need people. I once drove all the way to Virginia by myself in the car with nobody riding with me and listening to the radio and praying and uh, having silent times. and I was doing everything I possibly could. And when I finally got there, I was having a hard time talking to real people because it was like something had broken in my, in my mind. I needed people to interact with. I was like in such withdrawal just from 14 hours. We were made for community. We were made for one another. It's not good to be alone for a long period of time. Notice something about chapter 6. If you want to grab a Bible, turn in Galatians to chapter 6. It is bookended by the same word, brothers and sisters. The word amen is stuck at the very end, but right before that is brothers or brothers and sisters to be inclusive. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit, brothers and sisters, amen. That's how chapter 6 ends, and it starts by saying, Brothers and sisters, if anyone is caught in in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him or her. Brothers and sisters, brothers and sisters. The whole chapter is focused on a healthy community, a thriving community, and what that looks like. So remember in Galatians, there was a group of missionaries that had come to the church after Paul preached, and they were saying, you have to get circumcised and you have to fulfill the entire law of Moses or you're not saved. Jesus is not enough. You need Jesus plus Moses. This chapter tells us a little bit about their motivation. They were doing it not out of love for the Galatians. They were doing it so they could boast in their converts. He says in here, so they could boast in your flesh, you that surrender to this circumcision. And it was also so that they wouldn't be persecuted for the way that they were living. So if everybody else was living the same way, then there's kind of safety in numbers. In other words, it was all about them and not about love for the Galatians. And Paul points that out in here. They were not building up the community. Now, I want to back up for a minute and talk about the humility that is necessary for community to thrive. And and Paul finishes chapter 5 with this verse. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. Conceited and provoking or envying. 
Now, here's one of the immediate problems in community. The minute you get two people together, there's a temptation to compare and contrast. I mean, it's part of the way the human mind works, just learning and understanding stuff, but I'm going to make distinctions. You're going to make distinctions. Uh, This starts at a very early age. How is one student different than another student? The problem is, as people who are bent inward on ourselves, who are sinful, who are prone to the desires of the flesh, it moves to vanity, conceit, one uh, one above another, uphandedness, I'm better than you, I feel good about myself if I'm competing and winning, or oh, you're better than me, and I'm just, I, I envy that. I wish I could do what you do. You're so gifted and I'm not, whatever it is, and so I go into despair. So I either go to pride and compete with you, or I go into despair and have envy for you. That's one of the primary things that breaks down community. Now, the gospel in particular, the cross at the center of the gospel handles that so beautifully because the first thing it does by saying the Son of God had to die on a cross for our sins, the first thing it does is it brings crushing humility to us. I have to deal with the fact that my sin is what caused the Son of God to have to die on a cross. His love for me and you, of course, compelled him to do it and obedience to his Father. But if we weren't sinful, he wouldn't have had to do it. So all of a sudden I realize look how bad that was. That means look how bad I am. And the humility of that, just, it just crushes me. But rather than land in despair, I recognize something too about the great value. You and I are worth it. Otherwise, he wouldn't have done it. I remember from my engineering days when I was doing general contracting, my boss, I asked him how much some trade costs. I was doing general construction. And I was like, how much does it cost to put the drywall in a building like this? And his answer was not, you know, so many dollars per square foot, he went, whatever you can buy it for. In other words, if you want to know what something's worth, it's what someone is willing to pay for it. So what are you worth? What did he pay for you? All of a sudden, that crushing humility is matched by unsurpassed love. You are so valuable because he was willing to pay that price for you. So now the humility piece is resolved. I don't have to worry about being showing to myself that I'm good enough by being better than you because I already know I'm valuable because of what he paid. I also don't have to go into despair because you're better than me because that also has been dealt with on the cross. Both are handled. So I have this humility and now I can, I can honestly go and say, all right, how do I fulfill the law of Christ? What would he have me do as a response to this loving gospel? Well, bear one, another bur- one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. Now, what is the law of Christ? I already mentioned he summarized the law and the prophets, meaning the law of Moses and the prophets with the the summary of the law. Love God with all your heart, love your neighbor as yourself. In John 13, he he goes a little bit further and he says in the upper room, right before he's going to die, he says, I now give you a new commandment as I have loved you, so you are to love one another. Well, how did he love us? Well, he loved us by dying. John 15 says there's no greater love than this than someone lay down his life for his friend. And he says, you're my friends if you do what I what I command you. And he displays for us that kind of love when he dies. And so he's now saying, you're supposed to die to yourself so that you can love and serve others. Him first and people second. Love God, love neighbor. The law of Christ is fulfilled in this. Now, if you go all the way back to um, Genesis again, the very first sibling rivalry happens between Cain and Abel. And it's the same thing I'm talking about here, this conceitedness and this envy and 
Abel makes a nice offering to God and he's grateful for it. Cain does something that's less than adequate and he gets jealous that God commended his brother. And so God warns him and says, be careful, Cain. Sin is crouching at your door and it wants to have you. Well, as soon as God supposedly turns his back and Cain thinks he's alone, he murders his brother. And then God comes to him and says, the blood of your brother is crying out to me from the ground. What have you done? Where is your brother? And then he asks that awful question, am I my brother's keeper? And the rest of the book is about the answer. Yes, you actually are. You're accountable one to another. You're not an island. You're not on your own. You're not just individual. As the New Testament says elsewhere, if one suffers, all suffer together. Is one, if one is honored, all rejoice together. We realize that we're interconnected. If you do poorly, it hurts others. If you do well, it blesses others. And the same for me. If I fail, it hurts you. If I succeed, it blesses you. That's the nature of community. And I am, in a sense, accountable to you and you to me. I'm not speaking now as a pastor in a congregation, just as a, one brother in Christ, two brothers and sisters in Christ, as members of the family of God. So this is the humility that we need to understand how this works and to be willing to engage in community. God wants us to engage in community. He thinks we do um, have a connection to one another as well as with him. And now, what do we do with it? So that was about humility. The second part here is about burdens. Our memory verse, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. Notice right away, it doesn't say, if someone has a burden, bear it. It simply says one another's burdens. It implies something, which is my call to worship this morning. It implies that all of us are carrying a burden of some kind, some greater than others, but we all have a burden in this life. What is yours? Are you in touch with it? Are you aware of what burden you are carrying? And the kind of burdens we're talking about here are the ones that are not meant to be carried alone. The, Paul does finish the little section I'm on in verse five and say, for each will have to bear his own load. Speaking, of course, of judgment at the end of time, you will be accountable for your words, your thoughts, and your deeds, and only your words, thoughts, and deeds. You won't be accountable for my words, thoughts, and deeds on one hand. But as part of a community, you know, if I have a burden to carry and you're not helping, well, that's one of your deeds. You're, you're neglecting to help and vice versa. So we're supposed to bear one another's burdens. Yes, we're also supposed to bring these to the Lord. But think about this. A lot of times the way that the Lord bears your burden is he brings another person, another uh, a friend alongside to be his hands and feet to, to serve, to help you carry the burden. And he wants you to do the same for others. And this, all of this is coming, by the way, out of the love that we have in Christ. It's motivated by love. It's, it's not about earning salvation. It's a response to God's great love for us. We love because he first loved us. I mean, John, the apostle John talks about this at great length. Life is just too hard to do it alone. There's just too much of a burden out there. It's also too good to do it alone. We want to share the successes and the breakthroughs. We want everyone to be part of that. So verse three warns against being conceited. It says, for if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. There's no task that is beneath you. 
I was humbled one time when I went as a leader with a bunch of students to a homeless ministry in Atlanta, and I watched for three hours homeless people go in and out of this bathroom, and who knows what they do in there. And at like 11.30 at night, the leader of the ministry said to me, the other leader who was uh, our female leader and the 12 high school kids, who wants to clean Jesus's bathroom? I had some really mature kids on that trip, and nobody's hand went up. So I cleaned Jesus' bathroom, and it was, that was a humbling experience. No task is beneath anyone. I didn't get to escape that because I was the leader. It was a task that had to be done, and so I did it, begrudgingly. It would have been better if I'd done it joyfully. But when he said Jesus' bathroom, not the bathroom of homeless people, it was a reminder of Matthew 25. Whatever you've done to the least of these, you've done it to me. And so that was helpful for me to recognize what this carrying of burdens is all about. Now, the, the third part of this, so there's humility, there's burdens, and the third part, which we don't like, is the confrontation one. I skipped right over verse one. Brothers and sisters, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. We would rather say, hands off. I'm not getting involved in that. Who am I? I don't want to judge others. I don't, you know, the whole thing. Even, even Jesus elsewhere says, take the log out of your own eye, and then you'll see clearly to see the speck in your brother's eye. So there is this understanding of helping one another. And it's if anyone is caught in a transgression, not, I mean, we're all transgressors, as we know. We say this every week. That's why we confess every week. We're clear that we're, we cannot escape sin entirely. So it's not going around and being like the sin police person. We're not, that's not what we're talking about here. We're talking about somebody caught. They're stuck. They're caught in a specific sin. And the Lord would have us in the church bring the kind of encouraging and gentle conviction to the situation that will help get them uncaught. Now, I'm going to give you some really practical tips about this, recognizing it's a very delicate thing. So the first one is to pray. Don't ever go talk to somebody about a sin without first talking to the Lord about that person so that you get God's heart for them. We want to make sure we're doing it not because the Bible said I'm supposed to. We're not doing it because I don't like the sin. We're doing it because I love the person and I see that this, whatever they're caught in, is hurting them. It's stealing their life away. You know, Jesus talks in John 15 about the joy there is in obeying his commandments. When we walk in his ways, we experience a kind of joy. When we get caught in a specific cycle or pattern or specific sin, we lose the joy. So we need to talk to the Lord about that, and then we need to get God's heart for that person so it's motivated by love for them and a desire for them to have the joy restored to them that this sin is stealing. And then we need to do it gently, as it says here. And what gentle is, is a sliding scale, I understand, based on personality and whatever. So you'll have to think about what does it look like to be gentle. But it also says, be careful. I mean, right here, he says, uh, in a spirit of gentleness, keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. So that's where the humility piece, again, is needed. It's like, I'm, if I'm going to speak to somebody about something they're caught in, I have to go in recognizing that it is only by the grace of God that I'm not right where they are. And I could easily do something worse or the same thing or something different. And so if I was caught in sin, I would really want somebody to help set me free from it too. Somebody that would do it prayerfully with a heart of love for me and in gentleness. So here's, I actually wrote down how I might say this. And I've done it before. 
I would probably say it with very slight, like, um, not su- like the possibility, a language of suggestion. I might, uh, I'm not sure you're thriving in this particular situation, and I'm wondering if God's joy is being stolen from you because of that thing that's going on. Are you willing to talk about it? You can't force somebody to change, but you can help them see that you see it and that you're willing to talk about it. And if they recognize that you're a person who also is aware and in touch with your own brokenness, then there's freedom. There's a kind of grace there. You're not coming in as somebody who's going to break down on them with like rules, right? You're doing it in a spirit of gentleness. And so the whole community is built up. If that person is restored and done gently, it's a really great gift. The word here in this passage that says restore is often used in the ancient language in the medical arena for like setting a broken bone. You got to get that bone back straight and then it will heal correctly. Something that's, you know, broken that heals wrong is always wrong. And so there is a little bit of a pain in this. And this is just part of being in community. It's sort of painful. So I want to encourage you to look for ways to build up the community of faith because the scriptures do this. And this is one of the implications of the freedom we have in Christ. We're free to actually speak to one another because it's not about salvation. It's not about works. It's not about any of that. It's about love. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. Now, let me suggest something from our vision diagram and our pathway of discipleship. Belonging is really important. I define belonging as knowing and loving one another not just loving one another. Because in the church, you hear that a lot. Love one another, right? Love God with your heart. Love your neighbor as yourself. I say no and love because it's really hard to love somebody you don't know. I mean, how do you even know what their burdens are if you're not in a relationship with them? How do you even know if they're caught in a sin if you don't even know what they do, right? So we have to start to know one another. And that's where the vulnerability of community happens. It's good if we're walking in the way of the cross, if we understand that balance I mentioned before. And so you who are spiritual, that's the word in here, who would restore someone, if you're spiritual, that means if you get grace, if you understand the grace of the gospel. We've done great work. And I say we, because if one is successful, I'll rejoice. Dan has done a great job of pulling together small groups and a whole team to launch that. In the last couple of years in this church, we've focused on an on-ramp to the belonging quadrant in our little pathway. There's four quadrants in the pathway, belonging, knowing and loving one another. The on-ramp to that is the alpha-rooted life group sequence. Alpha starts September 9th. It's a great way to get to know other people. There's too many people Sunday morning to really get to know one another, and we're focused on worshiping the Lord in here. We're not focused on each other. I mean, sort of, you're all sitting shoulder to shoulder looking at the Lord figuratively, looking forward. If we were in a circle, we'd be focused on each other, right? Alpha-rooted life groups is about getting in a circle. It's about talking about this new life that God is offering us in the gospel, and it's being known and knowing. And so I really want to encourage you to get into a small group. Jump into the Alpha course. If you've already done Alpha, get into a rooted group. If you've already done rooted, get into a life group and start doing this. That's the way that the community is supposed to grow. That's, that's central to what Christians are supposed to do. It's what all people are supposed to do. And if you're not sure yet what you think, I hope you'll consider checking out Christianity because that's what Alpha is really good for. Come, see, ask the questions, think about this. Do I want to live life on my own terms alone all the time, or do I want to be part of a much bigger, beautiful thing where the fruit of the Holy Spirit is being made manifest? It's way better. I want you to come with us and be part of it.
Would you pray with me? Lord, thank you for this new community that we have in Christ. Thank you for the, in, the grand invitation to belong to your family. Lord, help us. Help us with these burdens, both our own and others. Help us to be the community that you died for. For we ask it in the name of Jesus. Amen.